So you'll see at the, the top of your handout, the uh, title there is The Need for an Eternal Perspective in the Midst of Suffering. So everything that you have in your handout there, what I'll be working through, most of it is pulled from this resource, um, Suffering, Eternity Makes a Difference by Paul Tripp. Um, it was originally published in, I think, 73, and then republished a few years later, and then republished a, a few years later. But it's, a, it's an older resource, but it's really good. And I hope this class is um, encouraging for you. Uh, suffering is something that all believers go through. It's, um, it's inevitable. It's actually uh, promised that we will suffer. Um, as sure as we've been granted eternal life, we've been given uh, the gift, it says, in Philippians at least, of suffering. And so every Christian deals with this reality. All of us experience suffering to some degree, on some level, at some point in our lives. And so <clears throat> we want to think about this subject. And this morning, again, we'll be looking at the need for an eternal perspective in the midst of suffering. Now, there are many different types of suffering but the one that we're going to look at this morning will deal specifically with the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. In other words, why does it seem that so many unbelievers around us live lives of, of ease and comfort, while uh, the Christian, sometimes we seem to be constantly afflicted by suffering and pain and trouble and heartache? Uh, perhaps you have asked that question before to yourself. Um, even if you haven't asked in precisely those words, if you are one who is suffering in this way and with this mindset, um, or know others who might be, then learning how to think through suffering from an eternal perspective gives us wisdom. Um, it gives us the ability to um, have view our suffering and our trials in this life from God's point of view, as he has revealed to us in the scripture how we ought to think through these things. So um, we, we, we don't want to um, take one another's suffering and affliction for granted. We, we don't want to think that the way to get through suffering is to sort of become this stern, uh, stoic at heart where we just, we stand there and we say, okay, well, it's coming. Let me get ready. And we firm ourselves up and try to blunt the feeling of trouble or depression or pain. Um, that's, that's not how we should work through suffering, but we should actually, um, in a sense, uh, loosen ourselves and uh, be willing to experience the, full, the fullness of that suffering with something feeding how we see it and how we experience it, right? So, Suffering from an eternal perspective helps us to do that. So just, um, I'm going to follow in my, my little book here. So Paul Tripp paints a scenario. So it's a woman, and her name is Mary. I don't think we have any Marys in the room, so don't be offended by <laughs> the scenario here. But her name is Mary. He says, Mary is someone who says, I'm discouraged. Um, I'm angry, I'm envious, she says. Uh, she is described 
or she described how her life had been unraveling at the loss of her husband, her home, her children, all of this through a divorce that she had. So Mary came from a good church and she knew the Bible, but her situation made no sense to her. She says, I have no reason to get up out of bed in the morning. She was jealous toward people who seemed to be um, always at ease, sort of doing whatever they please. Yet all that went through her life was suffering. Most of all, she struggled with anger toward God. She says, how can he say that he loves me? Is this the abundant life he promised? I really thought that he would meet all of my needs, but here I am with nothing. I can't read my Bible. I can't pray. I can't make it through a church service without tears or anger. I look at my life and at the promises of scripture and I just don't see them lining up. I'm worse off than the average non-Christian. So there's no, no doubt here, Mary is going through a season of suffering. So what's wrong with Mary's thinking? Most people, regardless of their theology, live from day to day without a sense of eternal eternity in view or an eternal destiny. So it just doesn't fit the way we think about our lives at times. But the Bible says that it is possible to understand what God is doing or to face hard times successfully if the reality of eternity, or rather it's impossible to do those if the reality of eternity is missing from the picture. So if you are a person who is suffering or trying to help someone who is suffering, then learning how to think through these things from an eternal perspective, again, gives us wisdom and encouragement. And we'll do this by looking at Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 73. And so we want to sort of uh, think with Asaph through um, his suffering. We want to sort of join him in his perspective and walk with him through um, his, his heart. Psalm 73 is one place where the Bible teaches us how to look at life from an eternal perspective. So Asaph, the writer, describes a familiar experience. We look around and see bad people uh, prospering and good people suffering. <clears throat> people who don't know and love God, who in many ways live selfish, arrogant lives, seem to be enjoying lives uh, free from burden and free from suffering. Meanwhile, believers suffer. So Psalm 73 goes right to the heart of this painful question. It gives us four practical ways to respond to our own difficult circumstances and to encourage others who are struggling along these same lines. So first, uh, under four practical ways to respond to suffering, first we want to examine your focus. Examine your focus. So let me have someone read Psalm 73 and read verses 1 through 12, if you don't mind. Nice and loud for us. Go ahead, Matt. Thank you. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat. 
are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, find no fault. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Thank you. So how many, how many of us um, tend to measure God's goodness to us through our circumstances at the time? How many times do we look at what we're going through and we say, the Lord really loves me, or I must have done something and now God's mad, right? We, we have these experiences with other people, and at times we project that onto God, and we assume that his love is wavering. Right? It's sort of on this spectrum, and it's based off of how good we did that day. Um, it's based off of some, some people, how much money they're making. Some people, um, how good they feel their family is doing. Some people, it's just their, eternal, their ex- external circumstances. But Mary's, and back to our scenario here, and what many of us experience, our eyes are on our personal happiness and the physical world in the here and now. And so we want to look at three elements of our perspective at times that causes us to have uh, a wrong view of God and our suffering. <clears throat> First, so we'll, we'll do this by using Mary as our uh, um, example here. Uh, Mary is looking at created things. She's looking at created things, A there. Mary tends to define life in terms of uh, possessing and experiencing the things of the world. So this goes right at the heart of our struggle with sin. Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The key word in this verse, in, in Romans 1.25 at least, is the word Exchanged. They exchanged God for his creation. Now, if you're familiar with, some, with, with Romans 1, what that passage is sort of working through, God has revealed himself, um, and then it gets on, into God turning certain people over um, because they've exchanged his glory for other things. And we can think, um, well, what comes to mind is sort of this uh, person in sort of a foreign area, and they're worshiping at the foot of a totem pole and it has an owl and a cow and then the moon and then and we and we picture that as worshiping created things but in our hearts we do this all the time uh, whenever we um, get our uh, our deepest satisfaction from a created thing and place of God then we're worshiping a created thing so we, we walk around, all of us at different times, walk around with the totem pole in our hearts that we are worshiping. <clears throat> and so it's not just out there. Uh, Romans 1 says it's, it's in here. For uh, they exchange the truth of, for God and worship and serve. And it's interesting that it ties um, our satisfaction in these things and our circumstances with worship. It says it's actually worship is happening there. It's not just um, uh, us thinking that this thing is 
uh, better for us. It's, it, it puts it in the category of worship. And Asaph, he struggled with this as he envied the life of the wicked. In Psalm 73, he says, uh, they have no struggles and their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens of the common man. They are not plagued by human afflictions, sort of paraphrasing here. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. Uh, they increase in wealth. Um, you see that in verse 4, 5, and 12. So the good things unbelievers enjoy will be a constant source of discouragement if we view God's kindness to us based off of our experiences with the things he created, right? So when we look at the world and we say, man, they, they're driving this car or they got this promotion, how? They lied and cheated their way to the top. Um, they're, they're, they're living in this neighborhood. Look how well, well their kids are doing. How are their kids turning out like they are? I know how they are with their kids. <laughs> they're not great, but their kids are doing so well. And we compare, we look at our lives, we look at theirs. I'm thinking specifically unbelievers and we covet and we get jealous um, and it becomes a source of bitterness for us. This is what Asaph is sort of working through in his heart. Something else we look at as we think about these things that these are three elements we erroneously use to determine God's blessing be there. Um, we look at our present personal happiness, our present personal happiness. What is God's purpose for me? Is it to pack my life full of pleasant experiences? Uh, What is the good that God is doing in my life and the abundant life that the Bible promises? What is that? We tend to forget at times that the gospel is more about the coming of Christ's kingdom than our own individual kingdom and enjoyment. Something else is happening outside of us, um, through us, but also outside of us for the glory of God. So what is God working on? What is, what is he doing? Peter explains in 2 Peter uh, 1, 3 to 4, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things or everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world because of sin, because of evil desires. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. So God's main goal, the chief good he offers us is to deliver us from the bondage of our own evil desires and to make us participants in his divine nature. So he's changing our hearts so that we would live a life bearing fruit for him unto him by the spirit so his focus is eternal and it's spiritual so he's aimed at our hearts our affections Um, J.C. Ryle says that I think I mentioned this before maybe last week that God knows exactly how much sunshine and how much rain to give to his children. Um, at times we feel that it's just rain. Then at times we feel it's, we're at ease, it's sunshine. We go through seasons where it's like everything is going well. 
kids are good, work is going good, church life is good, and you almost like you're sort of waiting for <laughs> the thing to happen, the, the terrible thing, because things are going so well. It's like something's wrong here. <laughs> and at times, it's just seasons of trouble. But God knows exactly how much rain we need and how much sunshine we need to bear fruit for him. <clears throat> Next, uh, the, the, the third element here that causes, to, uh, causes us to wrongly view how God blesses us um, we're, we're looking at the external and the visible world. So these are all sort of tied together. But see, we're looking at the external and the visible world. <clears throat> Christians often compare their pile of belongings with that of unbelievers, assuming that the Christian pile should always be bigger. So thinking about Mary in our scenario here again, Mary is invited to a barbecue. There she meets uh, her neighbor's husband. She says, man, he seems like such a wonderful guy. He relates well to the children. He helps his wife with the meal. Inside, Mary is seething. Why should this non-Christian lady have such a great man while her husband had been a monster? Unable to cope with life in a fallen world, how different this is from the Apostle Paul, what he would encourage the believer to think and to feel and to, and to do. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to read verse 7 through 12. And then um, 16 through, through 18. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Actually, let me have someone read verses 7 through 12 there in 2 Corinthians 4. Someone want to, want to read that for us? Sure. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Right. <laughs> And then verse 14 says, knowing that um, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. If you jump down to verse 16, so therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. <clears throat> For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient they're they're, they're passing they're fleeting but the things that are um, unseen are eternal so Paul does this sort of comparison 
seen, unseen, uh, transient, eternal. And so we find ourselves, do you find yourself at times looking at the things that are seen and um, making judgments about uh, yourself or about others or about God by looking at those things that are in front of you? Do we forget sometimes that God is working all things together for our good, even in the midst of, of, of suffering? So what, what, do you, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that? What are some, what are some things that you feel um, keeps us looking at things seen um, and from looking at things uh, unseen? What are some things that keeps us, um, or that may have discouraged you in the past when looking at your life? And how would you encourage someone, whether with this scripture or others, to um, not do that? How would you encourage them in the opposite direction? What are you guys' thoughts on that? I think with anything, it has to, um, you know, sanctification is not something that's just going to happen. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and you're taking control of your thoughts. Yeah. Processing your situations is, I mean, it's from the same way. It's, 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 you have to believe, one, that God is sovereign. He's processed the situation. And you're either going to handle it in a way that is pleasing to God and use it as a means to grow, or you're not. Yeah. Sin. And I think that with anything in sanctification, there has to be a proactivity and a, a saying, okay, I serve a sovereign God. He brought this. Why? What is God's purpose in this? What is he trying to do in this? Yeah. What does he want me to, how does he want me to respond? And you, you have to be very active and proactive in your thoughts. If not, they'll just freaking rabbit trail, man. Yep. Yep. So. They run from us, right? We have to be able to take them. Submit them to the word. Yeah. Anybody else? Anything else come to mind? I think to look at the eternal things, for me anyway, is take faith. Hmm. And it's much easier to just look at what's seen. Yeah. And you just see it. Where, you know, so I would encourage somebody to also in their trials to look at the things that look at faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right. So to increase their faith to look at the character of God in scripture and the love of God yeah. for them. Amen. And so that takes faith. Yeah. Amen. And so they need to look at the faith or I need to when I'm going through suffering and, and back to the created thing. I wrote down um, not just things but people because that's my struggle is getting worshiping people and I don't mean worshiping but it's the same thing in the heart putting people before God or depending on people more than I depend on God and so and I've seen that like Mary said you know, her life was ended. Well, obviously, she was putting her life with build around her husband instead of God first and her husband yeah. second. That's good. Yep. That's a very good practical advice that you would give Mary. Yeah, that's good. Yes. That's good. But I also would understand. Yeah, with, with sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't be just a, a saying, yeah. you know. Right. right. Again, yeah. there, when people are walking through things. I hope I have compassion and 
understanding that it isn't just okay you're here you need to be here <laughs> it's a process right 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 sanctification yep. is a process yeah amen yep Preston said earlier, these, if God is sovereign, he's caused all these things to happen, um, uh, then we know that that includes even the life in the life of the unbeliever. And so when God does give us opportunities to be salt and light and point people to that eternal reality, then we should take advantage of it. Yep. Now let's look back at Psalm 73 here. Psalm 73. So God wants us to, um, to, or he wants to draw us away from uh, the security of our souls being found in anything but him. Right? So his goal for us is not the abundance of earthly things, but the abundance of hope in God. Right? Uh, the physical world of what physical things is passing away. Right? We know that. We recognize that. We need to build our lives on what truly gives hope. Now, when you think about uh, Psalm, Psalm 73, and I think that this is what, what, what happens in um, our hearts when we do find ourselves looking out and um, getting jealous and having the wrong perspective. In Psalm 73, verse 4, he says, uh, Asaph says, they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they, they eat good. Uh, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, when you think about that, they have no pains. They have no trouble. They're not stricken like everybody else. Uh, is that true? that they have no pains, no troubles, they're not stricken? Or is his heart interpreting their circumstances in a certain way, right? So at times when we, when we look out and we see things um, and there's that, that, that jealousy, that anger, which we'll talk about in a little bit in ASAP, um, 
we tend to interpret reality in a way that's actually not reality. We, we look and we say, man, they're always, they just do whatever they want. They can buy whatever they want to buy. Their marriage never has problems. Their kids never give them a hard time, right? We use the unhelpful language of never and always, and it's not a right interpretation of, of reality. Of course they have afflictions. Of course they have pains. But we're comparing theirs with ours, and therefore theirs seems like never, and ours seems like always. And so there's a sort of this... Um, this internal dialogue that we're having where we need to counsel ourselves and say, is that actually reality? Um, is the way we're interpreting their circumstance true? And you find that it's not. <clears throat> okay, so let's, let's jump down to the, the second um, area under point one, how to examine your focus. How, how do we examine our focus? We examine our focus by first understanding the power of your interpretation. Understanding the power of your interpretation. Asaph interprets the prosperity of the wicked in a way that plunges him into envy and despair. So when we uh, experience certain things, um, our hearts are interpreting those circumstances in a certain way that at times, most of the time, is just not, not true be there, we need to recognize the symptoms of wrong uh, of our wrong focus. Recognize the symptoms of your wrong focus. Psalm 73 points out four symptoms of a wrong focus. First, there is a struggle with envy. Asaph says, for I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So his focus is in the wrong place and therefore there's, there's envy. Second, there is a struggle with confusion. Asaph says, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me, in verse 16 there. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me, ESV says, a wearisome task. <clears throat> if I have wrongly concluded that God promises me a trouble-free life, I will think that the wrong people are being blessed. Third, there is a struggle with discouragement and a lack of motivation for obedience. In verse 13, Asaph says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. They're not doing this, and they seem to be doing fine. I'm striving in sanctification. I'm praying. I'm coming to service. I'm in fellowship. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. So there's a struggle with discouragement. And it kills our motivation for obedience when we're looking out at, at others. If I, like Asaph, if I lose all motivation to obey God, um, and we, we, we feel that at times. There are times where I've felt my motivation for obedience um, weak or wavering, or I'm just, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like praying, as Tripp said at the beginning here. I don't feel motivated to do these things. And it's been from looking out and comparing myself to others, comparing my situation to others, I'm comparing my circumstance, my job, my family, my wife, my kids, comparing them to others. And it is a, it's, it's an obedience killer. It's, it, it clouds clear judgment. 
<clears throat> so our, our personal devotion and our prayer evaporates. Our attendance and worship service ceases. Uh, we withdraw from God's people. And we say, what does this matter? What's the point anyway? Finally, <clears throat> there's a struggle with anger when we're looking out at others and having a wrong interpretation of reality. There's a struggle with anger. Verse 21 and 22 in Psalm 73, Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you, God, who, who he's in this sort of conversation with. What emerged over time was a deep bitterness and anger towards God. We usually don't go to that person, that neighbor, and say, you don't deserve this, and kick their car and walk away. We usually, we turn to God and say, why? Why are you blessing them? Why is my life hard and their life easy? Which I think there's something in that that is good and right. At least our frustrations are pointed in the right direction. Um, but if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's anger towards God, then um, that's not the right, um, right way to approach God or to view the situation. So there's envy, there's confusion, there's discouragement, um, there's anger. Um, all these are symptoms of a focus on the created things. We're looking at the wrong things. <clears throat> um, C, under how to examine your focus, we have to identify and confess the true treasures of our hearts. Identify and confess the true treasures of your heart. <clears throat> Only when we turn from this external focus to an internal one can we uh, sort of uh, stand up, gird up under whatever God has ordained for us. And again, that's not a stoic standing. That's um, a recognition of the sovereignty of God and suffering is, is what it is. Okay. Before we go to the next section, questions, thoughts? Okay. So number two there on the back, back side at the top, we want to examine our conclusions, right? So we understand the power of our own bad interpretations, recognize the symptoms of a wrong focus, identify and confess the true tre treasures of our heart, and then the top, examine your conclusions. Examine your conclusions. Can I have someone read Psalm 73 verses 13 through 16? Conclusions are the ideas we believe about the thing. The assumptions that shape our response to life. Asaph expresses a conclusion in verse 13. <clears throat> All in vain have I kept my heart clean. 
and wash my hands in innocence. Uh, in other words, surely uh, it's been vain for me to keep a pure heart. In vain have I been, been innocent. It's been pointless. Um, there's no reason for me to be doing this. He's saying, I've wasted my time trying to keep my heart pure. What have I received as a result of that? <clears throat> and I, I think most of us probably have experienced that as well. And what's happening there at times, at least what I've seen in my own heart, is um, although um, I personally, although I'm confessing um, that I understand the sovereignty of God over uh, grace and salvation, and that he has called me to himself, and that my salvation isn't based upon me, um, in my heart, I'm, and I don't see this until later, I've been sort of doing things and keeping my heart clean as uh, a form of sort of feeding the love tank of God. I'm, I'm, I'm putting things in there and I'm hoping that his love for me grows and grows and grows. Um, at times it's that, at times it's, it, it's other things. But Asaph concludes that I have wasted my time trying to keep my heart pure. What have I received? What's the point of this? What's the result of this? <clears throat> I can live like the wicked and still be okay, essentially. But trial and sufferings are no indication that God has forsaken his promises. Let me have someone go to James 1, um, verse 2 through 4. Who wants to read James 1 for me? James 1, 2 through 4. Sabrina, and then 1 Peter 5, 4 through, actually, uh, 9 through 11. Who wants to read that? 1 Peter 5, Matt, 9 through 11. Okay, Sabrina, can you read James 1 for me? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may, perfect, may be perfect, complete, lacking in Thank you. And then 1 Peter 5. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so few people see suffering in this way. We find it hard to believe that a good God would plan for us to endure difficulty or suffering. Um, there are whole sort of systems of theology built around this idea that God only wants us to sort of prosper and to go in and possess the land and to uh, name it as ours and then go and get it. Um, and there's not a category for suffering in that. <clears throat> But that's just not how the Bible views the Christian life. Um, so let's, let's jump down. So underneath conclusions on the back side, how to examine your conclusions now. How to examine your conclusions. We need to learn how to think biblically about our lives. Learn how to think biblically about your life. Many people do not use the Bible to make sense of life. Instead, they use their life experiences to make sense out of the Bible, to uh, dictate what they believe about God, his work, and his word. 
But God's word is the great interpreter of our own circumstances in life. Its conclusion should determine how we explain our circumstances, right? So we don't look upon the Bible with judgment, but we let God's word look upon us and help us to interpret what we're going through because the Bible gives us the eternal perspective to have. <clears throat> Next, be under that category. Um, we need to recognize and confess where you have blamed God for your disobedience. Recognize and confess where you have blamed God for your disobedience. Whenever a person who believes that God is in control says, if only I had blank, then I would be, then, then I would be able to do this, um, essentially, we are casting blame upon God. Such a person is saying that it is impossible to obey God because of the evil he has experienced. So is our obedience ever chained um, by um, our circumstances, I guess is the question. Am I ever um, kept from being obedient because of my circumstances? <clears throat> Am I ever in a situation where there I could obey God in this, I, I, I desire to from the heart, but, but I can't. I'm not just talking about external things, I'm talking about from, from the heart. Um, God's uh, circumstances never change us from uh, obedience, right? There's, there is, um, we, we, we have to think, think through those things. That there are, there's always a way to um, uh, commit ourselves to God in obedience, even in difficult circumstances. When we're being afflicted by trouble or when life is hard or we lose our job or, or whatever it is, um, that shouldn't determine whether we pursue obedience to God. Um, that's sort of, that, that, that's having the wrong, the wrong view. Those, those are backwards. See under that category and examine, uh, or how to examine your conclusions. Face the idolatrous nature of those conclusions. <clears throat> Identify the idolatry in them. A person's tendency to draw wrong conclusions has moral roots. The conclusion that God is not good is rooted in a love for the things of the world and a desire that God would deliver them to us. Take what theirs, what's theirs and give it to me. That way I'll be happy and I'll, I'll obey. These desires reveal our patterns of idolatry, which need to be faced, confessed, and forsaken. Faced, confessed, and forsaken. I'm going to read James 4, 1 through 10 for us. James 4, 1 through 10. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. So there's fighting among you, there's fighting between two people, but it's because the thing inside them is at war. There, there's a war happening internally that's causing them to fight externally. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask 
and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's a, there's, in verse one, he mentions passions, the war within you. In verse two, he mentions desires. Um, again, something within you. Verse three here, he says, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the external fighting here is because we're trying to feed our own passions, right? And it's causing us to lash out. It's still the serving of the, the idol. And then he goes on in verse four and just sort of calls it out. You adulterous people, you do not know that, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose or to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So this, this instruction, these verses of instruction, there's heart, passions, desires, heart, passions, desires. He wants us to look at the right thing to come to the right conclusion. It's not about the person standing in front of you primarily. The person standing in front of you can just be a terrible person who has sinned. But there's still something going on in your heart and you can still obey even though the person in front of you who you're saying is the cause of all your affliction is standing there. You can still obey and pursue holiness and obedience to God. It's not easy, <laughs> but it's possible. Can you just repeat what the passage was? It's... Um, James 4, verses 1 through 10. You said about it not being easy, and um, I think that's another James 1. It's like, if any of you lacks wisdom, yeah. and I mean, especially in the middle of a trial, that's when you're going to lack wisdom. Right. You know, or in the middle of suffering or whatnot, you're going to lack wisdom on how to respond to the way that pleases God. Yeah. It says, if any of you lacks, ask, ask. God. Yeah. wisdom that's a the 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 humility in a prayer like that i don't have what i need for this i don't have the patience for this uh i'm weak at heart i i can't identify the strength i need to walk through this lord give me help and he promises to give help which is an encouragement um 
Sim- even just thinking about the trial net, like, okay, this is a loving father that yeah. the Holy Spirit, the, the Trinity lives inside of you and from your moment of salvation. They're more concerned about your sanctification than we are. Yeah. And he brings trials like this that are going to stretch us and press us and, and go way beyond what we think we can handle or want to handle. Right. And he's brought that so that we will come to him in prayer. Yeah. That will grow to him in his word. We'll come to him in prayer. We'll cling closer to the body of Christ and realize how much we need the church in our trials just as much as, yeah. you know, our natural tendency might be to draw back from the body of Christ, but we need to press in. Press in, yeah. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 73 <clears throat> takes a dramatic turn here in verse 17. As Asaph begins to look at life from, <clears throat> from, from a different perspective. First, he says that the ungodly people, uh, the, the, the ungodly are like people standing on a slippery slope. They are standing now, but they're going down eventually uh, in time when the Lord determines it. <clears throat> so looking at <clears throat> Psalm 73, verse um, where is it? 18, he says, truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Second, he said he likens the life of the wicked to a dream. Dreams seem like real life. They are powerful and can leave us shaken, but they are only the fleeting fantasies of sleep. So he says, uh, you put them in slippery places. If you can imagine, like, the uh, algae build up on a rock in a stream, trying to walk across it, slip really easily. He's put their feet in slippery places, um, and eventually they will fall. So the prosperity of the unbeliever, them seeming to flourish and do well, all these things are temporary and passing. But for the believer, trials and suffering explode the myth that the goal of life is to get um, as uh, rich as we can or as happy as we can in, in, in other things or just to get as much as we can. Trials also uh, help me realize who God is and the meaning of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> right, so we, <clears throat> we need to view life, number three there, from eternity's perspective. View life from eternity's perspective. And you see that in verses 17 through 24. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So his his focus shifts from them to, to God. So he gets an eternal perspective. And then lastly, four there. Focus on the eternal riches of redemption. See that in verses 23 to 28. The eternal riches of redemption. 
Nevertheless, again, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. So he thinks about, again, eternity. God is doing something here. It's beyond my understanding. They seem to be doing well, but he's actually put them in separate places. Yes, I'm afflicted, but I will be received into glory when this is all said and done. It's not about here and now, but it's about eternity. All right, so, so three points here in closing. You can just listen or write them down. Practical ways to uh, think through this. Reflect on the practical benefit of God's presence with you. Psalm 23, Judges 6, Isaiah 40. Reflect, reflect on the practical benefits of God's presence with you. Two, use God's word to understand your present experience and shape your response. Use God's word to understand your experience and let that shape your response and then understand your identity in Christ. God has promised great and wonderful things for the Christian. Um, It is temporary light affliction. It doesn't feel temporary or light. (laughs) It feels like affliction, but it's temporary and light and the Lord is uh, promising uh, himself really to to the believer. Okay? I hope that's, that's encouraging for you as we think through suffering, as we endure suffering. And may the Lord bless us to, um, as, as it's been said, uh, pray to ask for help. He gives help. He gives wisdom for us to walk through suffering well for his glory. Okay. But let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that Psalm 73 is inscripturated for us to read and to feel and to pray. Um, Let it give us a right vision, um, right eyes, right affections, right ears, a right lens through which to interpret reality. And I pray that you would um, keep us firm in the faith, Lord. Help us to gird under affliction to gird up, not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but by casting ourselves down in humility and with a contrite heart saying, Lord, I need your help. Please help me. And may you be pleased, Lord, to give us that which you know we need by your divine Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. You all are dismissed.